Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living, because the Stupid Cancer Show is here to change the world, one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show, Stupid Thyroid Cancer, and our survivor spotlight, John Filbert, young adult survivor of lung and thyroid cancer, regional ambassador, and uh, actually he's the regional chair now for I2I Dallas-Fort Worth in Texas. Dr. Stephen I. Sherman, M.D., at the Department Chair of Endocrine, Neoplasia, and Hormone Disorders at M.D. Anderson Cancer Center. And returning champion, my former co-host, the fabulous young adult survivor of thyroid cancer, healthcare blogger, and the author of Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, Carol Rosenthal will be joining us in the lineup. As a reminder, this broadcast is a program of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation one of the nation's leading grassroots advocates for the nearly five million young adult survivors and co-survivors affected by, you guessed it, stupid cancer. On the web at i2y.com, we are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight and sticking it to a system that's ignored us for far too long. Why? Because survival rates and quality of life for young adults have not improved in 30 years. Because remission is no excuse for cure, and because survivorship is all that matters. All right, hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun, full, and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, broadcasting live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan, New York City, I am Matthew Zachary, a 14-year young adult pediatric brain cancer survivor. Joining us live in the studio tonight, back after a brief episode with fantastic surgeries, our fabulous broadcast production assistant, young adult survivor, Amanda Freeman. Hello, Amanda. Hi, Matt. Welcome back, sweetie. Joining Amanda and I, we've got our chief cancer anarchist, Jack Buffard. Hello, Jack. Hi, Matt. I'm How back, you? too. You, you don't count. Apparently not, because you introduced Amanda first. Amanda deserves to be introduced first. Uh, are we going by looks? Yes. 
looks before beauty. Wait, age before beauty. Beauty before age. There you go. Thanks. Anyway, Jack will be monitoring our live concurrent interactive chat room, which currently has 37 users. Wow, very large for tonight and growing. So if you have any issues with the show, take it up with Jack. There's a chance he might listen. And of course, please welcome my official partner in crime here on the Stupid Cancer Show, hailing right here from New York City, 14-year young adult breast cancer survivor, acclaimed journalist, former deputy editor of TV Guide, and former entertainment news correspondent for the Fox News Channel, the lovely and talented Lisa Bernhard. Matthew, 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 and the booth, and Amanda. Yeah. Hi. How are we, you all? We have a couple of live studio audience members that we'd like to introduce to the show. Uh, we have uh, Mo Klumpus is in the, uh, in, the, in the room tonight. Hey, Mo. Hey, thank you for having me. And uh, how much did, were you paid to be here? I thought we weren't going to discuss that on the air. All right. Oh. Well, it's tax season, and we have to have full transparency. Terrific. Okay. If you want to sit next to me, you have to pay. Yeah. I'm always sitting next to Jack in the hot seat. They're surprising me. None of this was said to me before. Okay. Oh, God. Okay. And we also have in the studio tonight Erica Paul, a friend of Sage Bolte's, friend of the show, fabulous, fabulous, a professional cancer patient, I hear. And, and her friend, Kate Donut. Guys, hey, say hello. Hey. <laughs> a friend of Sage Bolte's, huh? Yeah. Interesting. I just saw uh, Sage the other day. Yes, you did. In Iowa. Why? Because she was there and I was there. Why were you there? I was there. I was there for the Survivorship Connection Conference in Des Moines. Okay. It was a good time. Lisa, did you have something to say to embarrass I was Jack? Say, tell, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> the night is young. Uh, tell everybody who Sage is. She's the, the uh, don't know. She, she's, she's the lady who talks about stuff that makes me sweat. <laughs> Sage is a clinical sexologist uh, of young adult oncology, and she's a licensed uh, clinical social worker. She works at Inova Healthcare in, um, in Fairfax, Virginia. She's going to be speaking on a panel about sex at the um, OMG Cancer Summit. She's been on the show a million times, and uh, she is um, sort of Sue Ann Mark's West East Coast counterpart. And Sue Ann was on the show last week. And Sue Ann was on the show last week, yes. Yeah, sorry, I missed it. Yeah. I was getting messages saying I should listen to the replay. I could probably learn something. You could have learned a lot. You definitely could have learned a lot. Yet, Jack? No, I figured I'd just stay ignorant. (laughs) (laughs) But it was cool to see her, you know, hang out with her in Iowa. And uh, she gave a great presentation on sexuality and, you know, reconnecting with your body and all the stuff that a lot of us go through after cancer treatment. So, Wow. So along the same all? lines of what we discussed last week. So exactly. you're, you're well informed. Yeah. And I told her the story about how when I was in Georgia last weekend at the Young Survival Coalition's Breast Cancer Conference, I got kicked out of the Pure Romance Party. Yes, you did. And apparently it's because in Georgia it's against state law for men to ex- to attend, like, sex toy parties or whatever. God, that love that state. And, yeah. and you have to talk about getting lung cancer while supporting breast cancer. Yeah, so after the dance that they had, I went out with Haley Shinto who many of us know, uh, her brother-in-law, Eric Chanteau, Olympic the Olympic swimmer. And, uh, well, Haley and I met at Can't Make a Dream, which is how I know my friend Mo, who's sitting next to me. And uh, so Haley and I went out to hit the bars and have some fun. And I walk into a bar, and I'm like, oh, my God, there's a smell I haven't smelled in uh, 10 years. Right. And it's, you know, you can smoke in bars in Georgia. And I was really aggravated, and I was angry, and I said, we can't stay here. I only lasted 10 minutes. And when we left, the bouncer was like, 
you need a stamp? And I'm like, no. And he says, if I don't stamp your hand, then you're going to pay the cover when you come back in. And I said, I'm never coming back to a bar in Georgia again. <laughs> and as I've been, like, stewing on this for the last week and, like, complaining about it to anyone who's willing to listen, I realized, do you know that the American Cancer Society's headquarters are in Atlanta, Georgia? Oh, wow. Right. And 99% of what they actually, like, claim to spend their money on is, like, anti-smoking campaigns. So how the hell is the state that their national $1.7 billion home office in a state that allows smoking? Like, how do they not buy off that legislation? <laughs> That's is a very ironic? valid point. Never yeah. thought about that. So it's is like, it okay. to quote Alanis? We are, yes. like, we're going to present ourselves as the so-called global leader in the war on cancer. But if you come to our home office, don't go out because they're smoking in public places. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's enough ACS bashing for tonight. I want to talk about a couple of things that popped up this week in the news. Uh, obviously, uh, top of the, uh, the, the list is our brand-new international social media campaign. Uh, we have uh, brought back Zac Efron and... Uh, <laughs> This is phase two of our fantastic relationship with him. He looked fabulous at the Oscars last night, and I know like thousands of you out there were just hoping that our wristband would slip below his tuxedo sleeve, but it didn't quite. And uh, you got to know it was there. It was definitely there. Yeah. I was surprised that Vanessa Hutchins was not accompanying him. I found that interesting. But I'm not a gossip king, but I'm here to formally announced what we did today to hundreds of thousands of people that the campaign is called Zach Gives Back. And the website is ZachGivesBack.com. And uh, you can basically learn all about it. It is a TwitPick photo competition where we are asking people to purchase large quantities of our wristbands. All proceeds go to I2Y. And take the largest crowd picture of everyone wearing the wristband, giving the bird, and whoever organizes the largest crowd by April 1st wins a $250 iTunes gift card. There Which can also, hear you a lot on iTunes. That's a lot of High School Musical songs. That, that is a lot. Of, sure that is. is the entire Lifetime series collection of High School I already Musical. have them, so I'd have to spend the money on something else. But That's High School music, Musical like 10, 11, 12, many it's, sequels it's, come. it's teen tween. It's Hopefully crazy. they'll have yeah. more High School Musicals than Star Trek. Yes. What? <laughs> what? That was for you, Matt. You're the science... You're the science fiction wonk. That's true. That is true. And then Star Trek trumped Avatar at the Oscars last night. I was very disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But kudos to uh, to Sandra Bullock for doing that. Best Oscar acceptance speech in my lifetime. And uh, really? Better than Jack Palance doing push-ups? <laughs> so how about, how about how we had the first woman director, and, of course, um, that this is how uh, dated that the Oscar folks are, that they actually played the song I Am Woman when she walked off the stage? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Inappropriate, awkward, <laughs> and what? <laughs> I thought that Come a lot on. of the music was weird. It was all, like, big band stuff, and at one point the E.T. theme came through. and Well, you know, they were playing E.T. in the closing credits. I will tell you one thing with the Oscars. I was really impressed because the, the Neil Patrick Harris, Busby Berkeley-style, you know, mu- musical act they did to open the show yeah. was choreographed brilliantly. It reminded me of a, a, of a of an Astaire and Rogers movie, and uh, kudos to those guys for doing it. The rest was all downhill. <laughs> He can do no wrong now, Neil Patrick Harris. He, no. he, Harris. He's kind of the man of the moment. He really is. He can do He's no wrong. He's doing very well. But, of course, I've, 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 I've been out, and I've actually been on that red carpet for the Oscars uh, many years. But um, now I uh, 
was going to watch it on TV, but of course, not only was I not there, my uh, Cablevision, my WABC pulled the plug on uh, Cablevision, and they didn't have a deal, and so I was one of those people who did not get the Oscars. All of a sudden, I had this big blue band across my screen on ABC that said uh, how terrible WABC was, and that Cablevision were the good guys, and ABC were the bad guys, and uh, unfortunately, I was not going to get to see the Oscars, but I could, down- I could download free in-demand movies if I wanted to. Yeah, oh that's funny God. because I was—I actually T-voted it because I was coming home from Iowa last night, so I totally missed it. But I watched the entire three and a half hour broadcast this morning, yeah. and uh, I saw that uh, going across the bottom. It said that uh, ABC Seven in New York had a, a tentative agreement with Cablevision, and they were going to bring it back like as soon as possible. So I—I I, I suspected that you know maybe a lot of people weren't getting the Oscars. They did. They, they came in in about an hour into the show, but I had already moved on with my life. <laughs> I had There's, to make to make a decision. Yeah, there's one observation I have about the Oscars, and yeah. this could be naive of me, but I'm convinced, like looking at all these ball gowns that the women are wearing, right. that these dresses are designed by gay men who hate women and just want to see them fall. <laughs> well, there's some, I think there's some truth to that. Oh, well, there's, <laughs> there's certainly a lot of them designed Curse you, by Oscar gay men. De La Renta! Let me get Thorbert on the line. We'll ask him. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, the other news we have here is um, I posted this today. I, I don't know if anyone else saw this, but there was a um, a guy in his, like, 30s was an actual – how rare is it that you were a bone marrow match for somebody? And he was a bone marrow match for a 10-year-old girl with leukemia. And apparently he was disqualified from giving her bone marrow because he was too fat. And I just found this disgusting. And I don't, I can't claim to be an expert on like what the potential biological risks are of having a heavyset person be a match or whatever. But uh, I just, if this has any credibility, then it just it loses all credibility. Well, I'm looking at the, I, I, yeah, it sounds it sounds nuts. I'm looking at the story right now. So this guy is 25. He's uh, 3.7. It looks like he's about 375 pounds. And it seems that the risk is that they didn't want to put him under anesthesia in order to collect the bone marrow from his um, pelvic bone. So that's not really actually having to do with the bone marrow transplant, but just for his health, putting him under anesthesia, which, of course, if there was some health-related matter where he needed to go under anesthesia on his own, um, they would do so to save his life. Right. Uh, But as far as I can tell, that seems to be the, um, the only argument here. Maybe our maybe our doctor coming on later today later tonight can uh, have some explanation for that. Possibly, I think that's that's a legitimate question to ask of people. Yeah. Um, I do want to give a special shout out to Lindsay Route in uh, North Carolina. We love you, Lindsay. And um, Lindsay, speaking of bone marrow transplants, Lindsay is on the bone marrow registry waiting for a donor. And uh, this is a story that hit home with me because we had a bone marrow drive for her in the city two weeks ago. We got about 200 people to sign up, which is fantastic. But, uh, you know, she's a huge Zac Efron fan, and we I was able to canoodle a, a special gift for her, which she received today. So uh, if she's listening, I hope she is. We love you, Lindsay. We're wishing you well down in North Carolina. And Hang in there, Lindsay. Yep. We got your back. And enjoy your Zac Efron picture. And I don't know what it's like because I didn't get one. No, Jack doesn't get one. But you, I, got I, auto, you got an autographed picture, is that right? Yeah, yeah, we did get a yeah. good picture. Uh, everyone's gonna hate me for you know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I gave it to the girl in the bone registry. Come on, guys, please. 
And forget Zach. If anyone wants an autographed Jack photo, send a check for nineteen ninety nine plus shipping and handling <laughs> to the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, and I will give you a, a game-used sheet of the news. Fantastic. <laughs> the chat room's being inundated already. I can see it. Oh, yeah, boy. Everyone's PayPal and their $20 to the office. Everyone's right like, Zach is my boyfriend. I love that. Anna Brower's not here tonight, but if she was, she would. I think she'd be the only person to step over my dead body to get to Zach. <laughs> You said Zach, not Jack, right? I did say Zach. Okay, Ephron. good. I got nervous. Because <laughs> <laughs> that is our chief token Jewish intern yeah. with the Fran Drescher squeaky voice. Oh, my God. We love you, Anna. Um, and, and Lisa, I, I, I really am excited because you wrote this incredible piece for, for TV Guide. I, I guess you're still, um, you're still a, a journalist, consultant, or advisor. <laughs> And, uh, I'm still somewhat of a journalist, yes. You haven't given so up your I, entire life for me I, right now? I Not yet. I'm this close. I'm very close. Uh, yes, I am still uh, I am uh, interviewing celebrities and uh, for my buddies at TV Guide and doing stuff for the New York Times and uh, some of the women's magazines and uh, make the occasional uh, appearance on CNN to talk entertainment. So this is great. I'd actually interviewed Ellen at the start when she first launched her talk show, and so they asked me to come back and uh, talk to her now as she's, you know, on Idol and Oprah's going away, and is she the next Oprah and all that stuff. So it's fun. And so is she the next Oprah? Well, uh, her Q factor, which you probably know, Matt, her likability factor is reportedly higher than Oprah's. No, she's she's getting more viewers. I mean, Oprah's Oprah's show is ending at the end of the year, and she's going to get a lot of those. She's going to open up in a lot of those markets where, um, you know, folks who watched Oprah or who were conflicted and liked both of them are now going to move over so she could, you know, to Ellen's uh, camp. So she's going to get a lot more viewers. So between that and Idol, she's uh, in a good spot. Wow. Well, I, re- can... I, I read most of it. It was a fantastic piece. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Very kind of you. I didn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I wasn't going to assume for one second that you did, Jack. I'll wait for the I'll wait for the cartoon to come out. Well, which is, which is too bad because she actually, you know, she she told me that um, she was listening to the stupid cancer show and that she's in love with um, Jack Buffard. But I guess that's all out the window now. Most she lesbians are. She thought you were are. so funny. She thought you were so funny that she wanted <laughs> she actually wanted you to be a comedy writer on her show. But now that you didn't read the piece, it's all over for you. Forget it. Yeah, and the other thing is, uh, my PR agent got an email from her people saying that they wanted my shoes to come onto her show and dance with her. But Anne Hayes got in the way. All right. Anyway, we got to get to the news yeah. here. So uh, every moment is brought to you by Everman Angels. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Alrighty. During this part of the stupid cancer show, we announce. Worthy news stories as we listen to Jack Buffard stammer through a series of his special announcements to let our listeners know about a whole bunch of stuff you might otherwise not know about. And we don't want you missing out on free young adult stuff, like conferences, happy hours, retreats, scholarships, support groups, music concerts, and more. So if you have something coming up that you'd like to hear our audience know about, please fax it to us at 877-794-6902 or send it to jack at i2i.com. Thank you, Matthew, for that lovely handoff. First up in your Super Cancer News, head on over to events.i2y.com. Events.i2y.com is your one-stop shop for all Super Cancer events happening nationwide. Stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we don't want you missing out, especially if I'm not going to be there. 
Surviving Idol. It's an upcoming talent show for young adults affected by cancer. Show off your talent by entering your submission today. Submissions can be entered at survivingidol.com. The buzz is building around the third annual International OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults. Being held Sunday, May 23rd, right here in New York City. Head on over to omg2010.com. That's omg2010.com for more information. All right, folks. Being that, I lack both the time and the intelligence to share with you all of the great stuff we have going on for young adults. I've created the Booth News blog. Everyone needs to check out boothnews.i2y.com. That's B-O-O-F.I2Y.com. For the official list of all Stupid Cancer News resources, these include surveys, exercise programs, writing workshops, peer services, and fertility resources. After you do that, head on over to 70k.org. That's the word 70, the letter K, dot org. There are approximately 70,000 people aged 15 to 39 diagnosed with cancer every year. For over two decades, there has been little or no improvement in survival for this age group. By signing this bill, you are supporting the Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Bill of Rights to be established as a standard for care to meet this underserved population. And finally, I would like to send a personal thank you out to Brecca Putnam and her team at the Survivorship Connection Conference for allowing me to participate in their great event this past Saturday. And I also want to send a big thank you out to Dr. Schumacher for giving me a tour of the Des Moines, Iowa area yesterday. It was a good-looking city, and I can't wait to go back. So thank you, Dr. Schumacher. And that, my friends, is your Stupid Cancer News. All righty. Bless you. Is that a sneeze? I don't know what's going on there. Some bobbing after hearing my news piece. All right, in our Survivor Spotlight tonight, a two-year survivor of stage four lung and thyroid cancer and a genetic freak with Cowden syndrome, based out of a Sanger, based out of Sanger, Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, a supporter of I2I and a fan of Jack to the point of stalking charges. John Filbert is currently undergoing treatment in a clinical trial at MD Anderson in Houston. And uh, can't wait to see I to I grow bigger and bigger. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, John Filbert. Johnny. Hi, John. John, this is when you start speaking into your phone. Oh, I'm sorry, Jack. <laughs> How you doing, pal? I'm doing good. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. John, it's good to finally meet you via 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 microphones. Yeah, we do the phone. I mean, we do the Facebook and the Twitter quite a bit, but sure. it's nice to finally put a voice and a name together. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us your um, – I'm going to start in here because these guys know you better than I do. Um, tell, us, tell us a little bit about your diagnosis. Two years ago, uh, lung and thyroid cancer uh, symptoms and then getting your, your, your diagnosis? I had gotten sick and lost my voice and went in to see a doctor, and she passed me on through a series of tests, and they told me I had a goiter, and they sent me for surgery – in February of 08, they removed it and removed my entire thyroid, said it was three or four times bigger than normal. And then in March of 08, I went into the doctor's office. He looked at me and just apologized and said, yeah, I'm sorry, it had vascular invasion. You have stage four thyroid cancer. I was like, wow. Wow. I was like, wow. thanks. <laughs> wow. And you had, so you had been symptomatic for, for how long before this happened? 
probably, to the best of my knowledge, a couple of years, but all the symptoms that I displayed, the local doctor that I had, who probably should have retired years ago, would give me a Z-Pack and some cough syrup. And really? Like, hey, it's just a cold. You'll be fine. And it worked wow. for a while, but it always would come back about once a year. <clears throat> Is that right? And it was exactly that. It was basically the loss of voice, as you said. It was a loss of voice to where I would lose my voice or I would have real bad violent coughing spells to the point of where it was just really in my chest painful. Wow. And you're how old again, John? I was 31 at the time. I'm 33 now. Okay. Okay, great. So tell us about, so so you're part of the, and I know your doctor's coming on next, but you're part of the clinical trial at MD Anderson currently? Correct. During the, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, please tell us what that entails. Uh, it, it was. It's very interesting because during all of this, they had also found out that I have lung cancer. And the prognosis wasn't good, but my doctor, who, you know, I love him to death, he didn't accept what all the other doctors were saying, sent me the test and came up with a definitive answer of a genetic disorder, Cowden syndrome that I have. And he found a clinical trial that directly addressed all three of the issues and it's just it's done amazing i have to now i go once about once every two months at first when the clinical trial started i was having to go once a week three days on uh two days three days and two days wow so the two are now are the two um the two connected explain how these the thyroid and the lung and then the cowden's how they're um connected or not the three of them I don't know how the lung, the lung part's connected, but yeah. the Cowden syndrome, my P10 gene doesn't work, and so it spits off tumors that could be benign or it could be malignant. And right. one of the basic characteristics for thyroid cancer, I'm sorry, for Cowden syndrome is thyroid cancer. Right. And so it's a direct re- relation to the two. Right. And they happened to, and, and in finding the lung, were you a smoker? Was there any reason to think that, you know, ha- reason that they gave for the for the lung cancer? I had I had smoked for a little while, but I had yeah. quit probably 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and I had smoked for Were you in Atlanta by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> or Georgia in general? Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I had smoked for a little while, but then I had quit. And I had asked my doctors because that was something very... Uh, concerning to me was did I do it to myself and they had said no that all of my issues are more genetic based than anything interesting well it goes to show like you know lung cancer is ironically coming becoming very prevalent in the younger communities the incidence it's still a very small percentage of all the young ones that do get cancer but by by uh, comparison to where it was 20 years ago it's it is significant and the obviously the, the whole point is that uh, lung cancer in older people is caused by, in general, just a lifetime of smoking. And it's been clinically shown that, you know, smoking for five or ten years can't do the same kind of damage if you start when you're in your teens and quit by 30 that 40 years or 50 years or 60 years of smoking can do for you. So, John, do you get pissed when people ask you, well, are you a smoker? <laughs> like oh, I just did. <laughs> just like Lisa did, damn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't get so much I, I don't get so much irritated in, in that sense, but more so when people look and they go, "Oh, so you did it to yourself then." Yeah. And it's or 
you know, the kind of comments that you'll catch of, well, if you smoked, you deserve what you got. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, nobody deserves to have to deal with the nightmare of cancer. Nobody deserves it at all. And plus the fact, I mean, even if we are talking about cigarette smoke, we're not even getting into secondhand smoke or, you know, environmental factors or things like that. I mean, you look at somebody, and I don't remember her exact diagnosis, but a completely, you know, they're certainly out of the blue, like a Dana Reeves, you know, who was diagnosed with with lung cancer, who was as healthy a human being in terms of diet and exercise and not smoking as pretty much anybody out there. So... And those were the things that terrified me because of how quick it moved with her. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it it scared me. Of you course. Know, it scared me quite a bit, but my doctor, you know, Dr. Sherman and Dr. Johnson, they just didn't give up. They kept they kept going at it and going at it and going at it until they finally found something that worked. And uh, so this is a regimen that this is this is pills. This is. Um, can you sort of tell us a little bit more about the about the treatment that you're currently undergoing? Uh, the treatment is considered a oral chemo. Uh, I consider myself very lucky that I did not have to do standard chemo like I believe Jack had to do. I was very fortunate and very blessed in that sense. But it consists of seven pills in the morning. And <clears throat> currently I'm on what's known as a drug holiday because due to the fact that I've done so well on it, the pharmaceutical wants to see how well I do off of the drug. Right. So a doctor, from what I understand, a doctor in Spain and one of my doctors, the other one, not Dr. Sherman, got together and said, well, let's give him a couple of months without the chemo pills to see how good he's doing. Right. And so, so far it's been going well, so I can't complain. And what was your experience with meeting, I mean, obviously you got associated with I2Y, but meeting other uh Let's talk about first the, the thyroid cancer patients your age in your area um, and their experiences um, with, with thyroid cancer. You know, I haven't got to really meet a lot of people in the area. It's now yeah. become more prevalent the more involved that I get with ITY and the more people that I meet that don't so much, you know, the thyroid cancer people I've met are more so across the nation yeah. than just in one area. And it's just been kind of interesting to compare because of the fact that of how close-knit a community I2Y is for some of the different treatments that I had to go through when I was doing the radioactive iodine and I was locked up for two days. I was calling uh, Jack's friend Dory, and I was talking to Caroline. Wait, who? <laughs> Mr. Plate. Oh, Mr. Oh, yeah, Mr. Plate from Baltimore, yeah. Him I know. I was talking to Dory and I talked to Carol quite a bit during that time because of just the the mind games it plays with you being locked in a room for two days with nothing to do and nowhere to go. So, right, Carol, who's coming on our show later? Yeah. So I mean, John, I I just have to articulate how it, you know the audience doesn't know you per se. Obviously, Betsy in the, in the Betsy is uh, John's wife. She's in the chat room. Uh, you're an incredible guy, and what you've been able to do, and I'm, I'm, I don't need to stroke your ego because that's Jack's job per se, but in the traditional sense of, like, I've been doing this for many, many years, and, you know, volunteers come and go at various capacities of, of, um, of involvement, and you have really taken the young adult movement by storm. And uh, I want to express publicly on the air that you are one of the fiercest and most passionate advocates for this organization 
that I've ever encountered, and it's a privilege and an honor to know you. Well, you know, I mean, in all honesty, you know, my hat's really off to you because before I found I2Y, it was just me, and I, and I tell everybody I knew three things about cancer. My dad passed away of cancer, Lance Armstrong had cancer, and damn it, now I've got it. And that was literally all I knew. And after I'd read Carol's book, I had read your story, and I was like, there, there's somebody out there that gets it. And I mean, I... Is that how that worked? You found me through Carol's book? That's fantastic. Yeah, I, and then I started stalking you for about a year. <laughs> I know what that's like. And then I met you in, uh, in Dallas, uh, like last, what, like September or something, October? It was October. I took the day off of work, dragged one of the other I2Y girls with me, and we went up there, and I think we sat up there for four or five hours and just talked. Yeah, that was really fantastic to, to meet you in person there. And it was just amazing. Why was that, I there? I, Why was I in Dallas? Oh, you know what that was? I think that was the ASCO conference, the ASCO COG yeah, Children's Ecology Group Conference. Yeah, because you came back and you were like, you got to meet this guy, John Filber. He's the best, and blah, 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 blah. And so far, he hasn't lived up to any of the hype. <laughs> <laughs> So John, were you were you and Betsy together while you uh, had you have you've been going through all of this? Uh, they had knew they knew I needed to have surgery, but they didn't know what it would entail. And I told my surgeon down here, I said, if I'm going to drop dead on the operating table, I at least want to drop dead a married guy. And so I put off my surgery until after I got married. Wow, got awesome! Married October of '07, and then the the fun ride for Betsy started March of 08 and she's a trooper she really is i mean i couldn't make it without her that's well, amazing i want to bring out dr sherman um john you can stay on the line if you have any questions or want to interject because he is your doctor so let me introduce him and uh we'll get we'll get this show on the road here all righty I don't have a bio for Dr. Sherman, so I'm going to make something up because I did speak to him on the phone. Dr. Stephen I. Sherman was raised by wolves in Wisconsin. He went to cheese school until the age of nine and learned how to tame elephant feet in clown college for grad school. Uh, giving up the need for oxygen, he decided to move to Texas, um, became a... Uh, parking lot attendant at MD Anderson accidentally found himself in an operating room one day and they, they thought he was a surgeon. So uh, now he does stuff at MD Anderson. So please welcome uh, Dr. Stephen Sherman. You know, Matthew, I just have to say, this is what we do. We have this enormously credible doctor from MD Anderson and with the Huey Lewis, he gets that kind of intro. I think I'm heading back to journalism. Yeah. Dr. Sherman, so thank sorry. you for your tolerance and patience. Thank you. Thank oh, you, my Dr. pleasure. Sherman. And, and you don't realize how close to the truth you really came. <laughs> was it the cheese school or was it the parking lot attendant? I just need to know. It, it was the love of no oxygen. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, serious, in all seriousness, you are one of the most qualified uh, in your field in the entire country. You come extraordinarily highly recommended. Not only are you a great man for taking care of and tolerating uh, Filbert, but uh, we have something extra special for you planned uh, after the show. We'll be contacting you for that as well. But welcome to the show. Uh, you had an autographed picture of Zach. <laughs> yeah, Zach Efron. We We're going to send you Zach. Do you have a daughter who's like 14 that hates the fact that like she didn't get the autographed picture? 
Uh, I, I would definitely not admit that publicly. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be a 14-year-old girl to love Zach Efron. Oh, I guess I suppose so. Wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Schumacher loves Zach Efron. That's true. So, obviously, uh, I wanted to uh, – may, may I call you, Stephen? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I had a couple of questions for you, and I know Lisa had a couple of questions for you. Obviously, sure. thyroid cancer, most people don't know, is the second most common cancer in young adults. Absolutely. And it is a, uh, a grossly underestimated cancer, um, but some might call it cancer light. And I, I don't like the idea of it being a contest, but what are your thoughts on um, how it integrates into the conversation w- with respect to young adult cancer? Well, you know, so many people that I see come in, and, and at some point, someone, usually a doctor, has told them the phrase that I hate, which is, if you have to get cancer, this is the one to get. Exactly. You know, and, and it makes the assumption that, that you have a choice or that you'd even want to select something, and nobody's going to want to have any form of cancer, and, and that includes thyroid cancer. It, it also underestimates the fact that there are people who get into trouble with thyroid cancer, and actually especially children and, and young adults, who, many of whom present with widely metastatic cancer. It, it can actually be in some ways more aggressive in children and young adults than it is in, say, a 40-year-old. So what, how do you tell doctors to stop telling patients that if you've got one cancer to get, this is the best one? Oh, that, that's a <laughs> that's another that's show. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I mean, it, a lot of what I do um, in in lecturing at national meetings and at grand rounds at institutions is to try to give people, try to give my the physicians in my audience perspective, and, and I think that's the difference because most of what I do in patient care is taking care of people with thyroid cancer. So the advantage I have is of taking care of hundreds and thousands and, and not just the limited you know, experience of a few people that I came across. So with that, I can share with, with the physicians a much better sense of the full spectrum of the disease. It's also a question of you know, helping people improve their communication skills and, and reading, you know, reading their audience, in that case, their patient. So how do you – is there a way to – how do you check or scan for, for, for thyroid cancer? Is that possible? There are a variety of tests that are done, and, and one has to be careful because it's easy to overdiagnose thyroid cancer. And I say that because whereas this year maybe 36 or 37,000 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with thyroid cancer, at, if, if you did an autopsy of everybody when they died, about 10% of adults will have microscopic thyroid cancer. And so it's one of those things where it's extremely common as a tiny, tiny disease that in reality patients are probably better off not knowing about and doctors not doing anything about. So that's one end of the spectrum. So we're seeing now increasing numbers of people who are getting ultrasounds of their neck, which is extremely sensitive. Saw a patient today, you know, as a three millimeter spot in her thyroid gland. The chance that it's cancer is very low, but somebody put, you know, inordinate amount of fear in her head. And this is something that, you know, doesn't necessarily require any fancy testing. Most of the time we diagnose thyroid cancer because of something that's palpable in the neck 
we can biopsy and, and most of the time demonstrate what it is and know in advance of the surgery that it's cancer and, and plan the appropriate operation that way. Doing something earlier than that in most patients actually doesn't improve their outcome. It's not something that, that you have to get at the five millimeter stage uh, because it actually turns out that you, you can't do much better than 99% survival in that group of patients. It's identifying the folks who are more likely to get into trouble that becomes the important part early on. And I think that was one of the things with, with John, um, which was trying to recognize what was thyroid cancer and, in fact, in his case, what wasn't. Right. In this case, the lung cancer. Right. And so causes, anything genetic, environmental, any, what, what are some probable causes, or does anyone know? Sure. Well, you know, the, the traditional one is radiation exposure. And right. it, was, it was discovered in the late 50s and early 60s that people who had a lot of radiation exposure to the head and neck from childhood acne irradiation or, or treating swollen glands, as used to be done, um, had 30 to 40 times higher chance of developing cancer. And we still see that to some degree in some of the survivors of head and neck malignancies or lymphomas who get treated with radiation. They do have a somewhat higher risk of thyroid cancer. There are different types of thyroid cancer, and some of them have a very strong genetic component, uh, like medullary thyroid cancer, where we can, in 99% of people who, who have that, we can actually identify the abnormal gene and test their family, test their children, identify who has it and who's going to get the cancer. Then there are the un, unusual cases in people like John who have unusual genetic syndromes like Cowden's, uh, which is a small contributor to thyroid cancer, but important to be able to recognize and, and pick out from the crowd because those folks might need different treatment and certainly screening in the rest of the family. Right. I, let me ask a quick question here. Um, there's, a, there's an odd longitudinal epidemiology, if I can use multisyllabic words here in front of Jack Buford. Wow. Wait, hold on, what? A longitudinal epidemiology when it comes to young adult cancers, because there are all these peaks and valleys that different cancers come and go uh, across the age groups, but thyroid really seems to peak at a very specific targeted age bookend and then go away entirely and then come back later in life. Do you, un you have any thoughts on that? Is there any study going on on that? Well, in terms of the, the age at which people get diagnosed? Yes. So, you know, thyroid cancer actually is, is relatively flat across the population in terms of the numbers. It's more that it's proportionately a very high percentage in the adolescent and young adult uh, population because there are relatively smaller numbers of other forms of cancer. Um, the the median, the the midpoint for diagnosis of thyroid cancer is about 40. So and you know we diagnose people into their 70s, 80s, and 90s with it. So I'm not sure that it's quite a peaks and valley in terms of the total numbers as much as where it stands in the relative proportion to the other cancers that get diagnosed. But do you think that the reasons why a 70-year-old gets thyroid cancer are different than a reason why, say, an 18-year-old would get thyroid cancer? Um, a 7-year-old versus... 70, 70-year-old. 70 70. Um, there may well be. There's some difference, actually, in the, in the mutations 
that are seen at different age groups. So especially in children and, and adolescents, there are certain thyroid-acquired mutations that trigger the cancer that you don't see very commonly in a 70-year-old, whereas in the older ones you actually see a, a different spectrum that are associated with, with different problems with the disease. This also, some of the particular mutations that are common in kids are also seen in the in the radiation-induced cases, and it was particularly uh, an issue with the Chernobyl uh, nuclear accident-induced thyroid cancer cases, the same spectrum of those mutations. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were referring to my treatment. Oh, no. Because I had 6,000 CG of head and neck radiation over three months. <laughs> and and uh, are still able to uh, salivate, I hope. Uh, 80%, yeah. It took a while to come back, but thanks yeah. to salogen, pilocarpine hydrochloride, yay! can be helpful, yeah. Very helpful. Um, so I, I, I want to bring out Carol, and then I think we can have yeah. a really great roundtable discussion. So, uh, Stephen, if you'll in, uh, indulge me, I'm going to introduce Carol, and we'll sure. bring her out here. Um, she is living with, with um, metastatic thyroid cancer, and she's one of my best friends. So uh, I think this will be a really good uh, conversation here. So let's – what would be inappropriate for Carol? Here we go. How about this? <laughs> Rosenthal is a thyroid cancer patient, blogger, and author. Her book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, is the culmination of five years research and interviews with professionals and patients in the young adult cancer community. She's written about young adult cancer for the New York Times, has been interviewed on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, Newsweek, and the BBC Radio. Her blog, Everything Changes Book, is a hub for conversation in the cancer community. She's also the former co-host of the Stupid Cancer Show and one of my dear friends. Please welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show as a guest, Carol Rosenthal. Hello, Matthew. Oh, I missed that. Oh, Who's that voice again? Oh, no. That voice. <laughs> hey, Carol, I missed how are you? you? I'm, I'm thrilled to get to... Meet Carol long distance. You too. Thrilled to meet you too, Lisa. We're we're very. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Well, I'm excited to be here, and especially in the presence of you know an endocrinologist who deals with thyroid cancer, because I'm such a cancer geek, and things like that excite me quite a deal. So. <laughs> yeah, we got a bustling ch chat room tonight. Our listenership is pretty skyrocketed right now. Um, Carol, you've been listening to the show for quite a while. Now, do you have any? Um, Initial, you know, thoughts on what we've been discussing with Dr. Sherman or on on uh, John's particular case. Well, yeah, I mean, I I have a, a ton of thoughts. Um, I think it's a really interesting conversation that we're having, and one thing that in particular interests me is just that the word overdiagnosis was even used because I think in the cancer community in general, we rightfully so want to diagnose people at earlier stages before cancer, you know, becomes more advanced, metastasizes. But I think that we have to look at this in, you know, a cancer-by-cancer cancer situation with each different kind of cancer. And, and um, I've just been very curious about whether or not we're somewhat over-diagnosing thyroid cancer. Um, when I was diagnosed, I had 19 um, tumors in my neck that were all positive for thyroid cancer. So, of course, mine had spread you know, quite a bit, but my doctor suspected that maybe it had been in my neck for 10 years, and that's a long time. And 
my perspective is that perhaps when you're looking at something like papillary thyroid cancer, which is often extremely slow growing, that we don't necessarily have to scare the bejesus out of everybody thinking that they have to check their neck every moment of the day to make sure that they don't have thyroid cancer. So yeah, the word overdiagnosis is something that I don't hear spoken about a lot, and I'm I'm really glad that you guys are talking about that. And, and okay. go ahead, Matt. No, no, that was Dr. Sherman. Uh, oh, yeah, I was just going to say that you know we also have to consider that you know if we had treatments that were 100% safe without complication, mm-hmm. um, we would use them. Uh, you know, ad nauseum. But the reality is that that even the the simplest treatments and the safest treatments we use for thyroid cancer have side effects, have complications, and the treatments can't be worse than the disease. And but what are you talking about? We're so lucky we have thyroid cancer. There can be negative impacts to this disease. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. To so the disease and talk- to the treatment. Can you talk more about the treatments, Dr. Sherman, and then maybe Carol kind of jump in in terms of what, um, how you kind of weathered any uh, side effects that you had? Well, um, for almost all the various forms of thyroid cancer, the, the primary treatment and the one that, that is the most curative um, is surgery, uh, and that's usually to remove um, most of the time the entire thyroid gland. Right. Now, depending upon the type of thyroid cancer, the common types, uh, papillary and follicular cancer, many patients are also treated with a second form called radioactive iodine, very special treatment used for thyroid disease, both benign and and cancerous. Um, Treatments like for for cancers like medullary thyroid cancer, uh, radioactive iodine has no role and, and isn't used. And Carol? Can you talk about what you went through with your treatment and any um, adverse side effects that you went through? Sure. Um, I had surgery. Um, first I had surgery, and then I had radioactive iodine treatment, and then I had more radioactive iodine treatment and more surgery because I have a pretty stubborn case of, of thyroid cancer, um, mine somewhat unusual. So um, I, I did go through all of that fun stuff. Um, and something that I... Uh, you know, I'm curious to ask if this is actually considered treatment, but I think another piece of the puzzle that I have so many thyroid cancer patients who read my book and who send me emails and, and we talk online, we talk on the phone, and, and a big thing that they talk about is having to go through hormone replacement therapy. So after your thyroid is removed um, and you are not putting out any more thyroid hormone, you have to take a little pill every morning that um, gives you your thyroid hormone, but not um, you know, with, with most normal human beings who don't have thyroid cancer, they kind of want a balanced level of thyroid hormone. But those of us who have thyroid cancer need to be maintained at a sort of hyperthyroid level because it suppresses the TSH, the thyroid-stimulating hormone, and uh, it helps keep our cancer at bay. It kind of like helps keep those little microscopic bits of, of thyroid cancer that could be hanging out in your neck from growing. And so for me, uh, and for so many other thyroid cancer patients that I talk to, yes, surgery is no picnic, and radioactive iodine treatment is no fun, but the sort of ongoing chronic conditions that I hear a lot of people talking about are a result of being on an elevated dose 
of thyroid hormone and what that therapy is like. And I feel like that's a conversation that the thyroid community needs to have a bit more about how thyroid cancer patients can manage the symptoms of being an elevated level of thyroid hormone. Interesting. And talk about those symptoms specifically. Well, I can talk about the symptoms that I experienced for myself, and they're very much like, you know, if you were to do your own good research and go to a credible website like the Mayo Clinic website and you look up what hyperthyroidism is, you can see this checklist of things that I have because I'm being kept hyperthyroid. So for me, I've actually lost a lot of weight. I'm I'm like skinny as a rail. Um, which ain't so hot and beautiful looking, actually. Um, I know that some people gain weight, but I'm very thin. Um, I sweat a lot. I sometimes have night sweats. Um, and I have a lot of anxiety, um, which I had not experienced before. And I've always been somewhat of a neurotic Jewish freak, but you know, this was a whole new level of anxiety that I was experiencing. I have brain fog. Uh, and all of these are things that for years, because I was diagnosed ten, almost 10 years ago, so I've been living with, I've never been cancer-free. I have had thyroid cancer in me for 10 years. And I have seen a slew of endocrinologists, um, not because the ones I was seeing weren't good, but because I'm a perfectionist and I always wanted someone better. So <laughs> I, I've gone through a lot of endocrinologists in my time, picking their brains, and I would say to them, you know, oh, I'm feeling like my brain is so scattered and I kind of have brain fog. And is this caused by my thyroid cancer? Is this caused by my medication? What's going on? I don't, I'm feeling fatigued. I feel sort of like my energy is, um, it's not good energy. It's like sugar high kind of energy, you know. I have a lot of energy, but I'm really exhausted at the same time. And they're kind of smiling at me and go, oh, that's great. You're young. You're a woman. You'll do fine. I heard that over and over again. You're young, you're a woman, you'll do fine. And they would never really answer my question. And I think there was just this huge breakdown in communication between what they were probably meaning is, oh, that all means that you're really hyperthyroid, which is where you need to be. And what I was just hearing was none of these symptoms matter and you as a patient don't really matter and move on to the next person. Um, so it's really been in more recent years. I have a fantastic doctor now at Memorial Sloan Kettering who, who in my last appointment, I said to him, I'm really experiencing this brain fog. And he said, oh, yeah, that's a result of being hyperthyroid. And so many people experience that. I, I wrote an article about this for the New York Times and got just an overwhelming response of people saying, yes, I'm hyperthyroid and I feel like I have Alzheimer's. And so for me... I know that I need to be kept hyperthyroid, so I start to look at what the symptoms are and what I can do in my own life to kind of mitigate the symptoms. I'm not going to make them go away, but are there things that I can do to change my lifestyle that will make my brain fog better or make it have a lesser impact on my daily life? And do you, and of course that leads to my next question, and if the, you know, if John or Dr. Sherman want to jump in, but tell us, Carol, too, I mean, so what, what are your suggestions for other uh, folks out there who may be going through those same uh, symptoms for being kept hyperthyroid? How are you able to kind of manage that in your daily life? If I could jump in real quick, the therapy yeah. for anyone to feel better about themselves is just to be friends with Jack Buford. Well, that's, that's wait, a given. Wait, what? <laughs> 
Sorry, I just had to throw that in there. We hadn't ranked on him in at least 10 minutes. Yeah, in fact, I fell asleep. There's a quota. (laughs) All right, go ahead. Sorry. Well, you know, I just kind of look at my symptoms. I mean, some of them are really easy to manage. Like, I sweat a whole lot more than I used to, and now I have to dress in layers. You know, and it took me a while to figure that out, but I need to go to sleep with, like, five different layers of blankets on so that when I start to sweat in the middle of the night, you know, it's, you know, things like that that I hear a lot of patients being very upset about, but we need to start brainstorming about it so that these things that are really can be challenging. I mean, sitting in a meeting and looking like, um, what was that broadcast news? What was that? Sure, sure, the movie. Yeah, 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 you know, the water's pouring off his head. Uh, how do we make sure that doesn't happen? With my brain fog, you know, I feel like one of the most challenging things was just admitting to myself that I had this problem. I sound sure. like I'm in a 12-step program, but, you know, I had to sort of take inventory of the ways that my brain fog interrupted my life, and it was really hard for me to do this. It was sad. I mean, I had tears flowing down my face. It is not fun to look at my life and realize that there are areas in which I have cognitive deficits. Um it made me feel dumb. I feel like my self-esteem often was just plummeting, like I was a closeted dumb person trying to look smart in the world. Yes. The way that, you know, my brain was functioning. But, you know, I once I realized that I was having these problems, I just started working with little tricks. Like I have a notebook where I write everything down. I, I can mean, attest with, to that. I've seen that notebook. Yes. When I'm sitting here right now, on the, when you asked me that question, Lisa, I wrote the word notebook because I knew it would fly out of my head. Yeah, um, interesting. So, you know, small things like that. I, I organize my house differently so that I can find things. You know, it would take me 20 minutes to find my keys. So I have, find, I have a place where I put my keys all the time. I try to get more sleep. I'm usually not too successful at that because I'm a night owl. Um, but I try to get more sleep. I don't cram my calendar as full as I used to. And I feel like everybody has to just work with these sort of trial and error ways of managing these symptoms. One one question, if I can ask a question, um, a doctorly question, is I'm curious about heart palpitations and, and beta blockers because that's something that I've heard various cancer patients talking about, and they ask me about this all the time. I'm I'm not a doctor. So I'm, I'm curious about patients who have heart palpitations as a result of being hyperthyroid and, and what can be done about that medically. Well, there are a number of um, effects that high levels of thyroid hormone have on the heart, and, and one of them is to speed up the heart rate. Uh, it can cause in some people, especially as they get older, irregular heart rhythms and also some thickening of the heart muscle. And it's been shown in a number of very nice studies that, that beta blocker medications can blunt uh, most of those effects. Now, in fact, people who have hyperthyroidism from the more typical causes, they actually have overactive thyroid glands, Beta blockers are, you know, one of their godsends for symptomatic relief. So there definitely can be a role if it's essential that somebody has to be on on very high doses. Part of it is that a lot of the folks that I see who are on suppressive doses of thyroid hormone actually don't need to be. Uh, And for people with with, uh, early-stage disease, limited to the neck, no evidence of cancer, actually the studies don't show any advantage, don't show any survival benefit with over, you know, suppression of TSH, keeping it, you know, just minimally suppressed or even near normal, actually they do fine. 
But for the people with more advanced and metastatic disease, that level of suppression really does improve survival, and, and you have to find some kind of trade-off between what you're trying to do to treat the cancer and, and what the patient can, can tolerate. Uh, and that may change with age. As people get older, they may be less capable of, of tolerating or being able to manage some of those side effects. And we may have to lower the dose uh, um, for a variety of health reasons. I, you know, one thing that regardless of what kind of cancer you have, I'm such a huge proponent of doing research because th- one of my biggest role models is this guy who I interviewed in my book named Greg, and I think almost daily about what he said. He said, I cannot fight cancer. You know, he's like, I'm not a scientist. I'm not in the lab. I do not have the cure for cancer. I can't fight my cancer but I can fight the system that doesn't get my medical records. I can fight my doctors who don't have the latest information. Um, I can fight the medical records department that doesn't have my lab results correctly. And so that really motivates me to do things like research. And so when I you know, am doing something like listening to a doctor speak on the Stupid Cancer Show and hear them say research has been done to show that being you know, elevated hyperthyroid when there's no evidence of disease doesn't really make a change in the prognosis. I I think, wow, I got to get my hands on that information. And so I guess I just want to empower people to do as much research as you can because I've learned over time that not not all doctors are created equally. <laughs> not all doctors have the same access to the information as other doctors or they don't take the time to read it or maybe they are not in a position where they're able to um, able to be the super uber genius um, endocrinologist like the one that we have on the show tonight. So I just really, I know that I've been living with thyroid cancer for 10 years and the way that I've gotten through it is just, you know, my version of positive thinking is just positive research and going out there and getting as much information as I can in the most up-to-date statistics, research, go online, go on to PubMed and learn about your disease and how to manage it and share these articles with your doctor, articles from really good, valid resources. I might add that the, um, you know, any doctor has access to some of the, the national and international consensus guidelines uh, for treating uh, cancers. And in this case, for the American Thyroid Association's recommendations for thyroid cancer, uh, are, are universally available, and they're a very carefully vetted set of recommendations based upon critical review of the published research. And if it's based upon good research, it says it. If the recommendations are based upon opinion and expert opinion, it states that as well. It, it gives the justification and how strong the evidence is for each of the 90-some-odd recommendations. And and if you're a sleuthy patient, you can find it too. I always like manage to get myself into these parts of websites and access information that's for doctors um, only and where you're supposed to have passwords and things like that. And, and if there's a will, there's a way. Or ask your doctor to look up this information for you. You know, if you find if you get to a roadblock in doing your own research as a patient on a credible site that's really only meant for doctors who are part of an association, ask your doctor to go there for you or ask your primary care physician if they can go there for you. You know, it, there there is a way for patients to access this information and to have really smart conversations with your doctors about it. 
Carol, the, I'm sure. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I was just add, the, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, or NCCN, has versions of guidelines and information specifically for patients as well. So it's, you don't have to kind of wade through and try to translate. Um, it's 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 ad, you know it's appropriate to the folks who may not have the same scientific background, but who clearly need to know the same information. Um, that's great. I, I'm, I'm looking at the clock here, and knowing that we have to wrap soon. But Carol, I just wanted to ask you too, as somebody who's been, as you said, kind of steeped in this for 10 years, and you've interviewed so many people and written about it. For folks who are either um, too afraid to do the research, they kind of I don't want to know, or uh, if they've got their jobs, they've got bills to pay. You know, there's so much in life um, that kind of can bury us under. Just what's your suggestion to people um, who just feel like it's too much to take on? Whether I said, you know, whether it's the support um, or lack of support around them, or just the fear of not wanting to go online and see something that they might not want to see, what would be your advice to them? Well, I, I think that's a great point because I think it can be really helpful to have other people do research for you because there's scary stuff that you have to sift through in order to get the information that you want to get to. So it's never a bad idea to engage a really smart person in helping you find this information. But the key word is smart person. Like, <laughs> you know, you might have a lot of friends who say, I'm so sorry that you have cancer. What can I do to help? And the way to get people to help is to give them very specific tasks. And one of these specific tasks is to ask people to help do your research. But you kind of don't want to ask your flakiest, least tech-savvy, kind of like flunked out of high school friend. Carol, um, I can hear you. I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, really do do find your, you know, kind of uber smartest, geekiest friend who you know you can really trust to do this kind of research and ask them to help you. Additionally, um, and here's where my brain fog comes in because this information is in my book, um, but it's not on the tip of my tongue. Um, there are consumer health libraries that will help do free research for you. I know that there's a great one at Stanford, um, and I don't, again, have the information on the tip of my tongue, but if you have my book, look it up, or just go um, call Stanford and ask about their consumer health library. You can ask them very specific questions, and they will do the research, print it up, send it to you, snail mail, um, email it to you. So, yeah, you can... That's great to know. Yeah, yeah, and I also, you know, I'm really... Um, I've gotten so much uh, free pro bono help from amazing people who are in grad school. I mean, I've had people who are in law school who help me out with my health insurance. Who I've had people do pro bono legal work for me. I feel like you know, go go find some microbiology student who you know feels badly for you because their dad died of cancer and ask them to sit down <laughs> and do some research for you. I have no shame, you know. I'm just like. Think about who the smartest people are around you and ask them to help you. That's how that's how you make it through is just putting your shame aside and asking the right people for help. All right. Good advice. John, you've been really, really quiet. Do you have anything to add or are you uh you have you tuned in and turned out and turned on because of Jack or whatever? <laughs> no, I mean Carol hit the nail on the head when it comes to me because it was just communication. I mean my last doctor before Doctor Sherman was uh, he met somebody's needs, but it just wasn't mine. And so that's how I coped with everything was I have great communication with Dr. Sherman. And, you know, I just, I'm very blessed to have him because if I didn't have him, all the misdiagnosis probably would have killed me by now. And I'm grateful that he did take time to do the show with us. 
Because I was going to keep nagging him every appointment until he agreed to do it. <laughs> My pleasure. All right. Well, this has been, again, one of our most listened to shows to date of the year. Um, the chat. chat room has been on fire. Thyroid cancer, clearly a major hot-button topic in the young adult community. Um, can't get enough attention and uh, very excited to be able to provide uh, all of this information and our fabulous guests to all of you out there in listener land. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for being our guests, and uh, we wish you good luck and Godspeed. And, um, Carol, I guess we'll see you in, uh, in May at OMG. Yeah, I can't wait to see you guys in, in May. May 23rd. May 23rd, New York City. If, if I can make a quick invitation to any Chicago listeners. Oh, you're giving a book there. reading tomorrow night, aren't you? Um, well, it's, we're having it's, uh, it's in every once in a while the Young Survival Coalition and the uh, Gilders Club here in Chicago has a meeting where they invite a guest speaker, and I'm going to be there tomorrow. And if there are other folks from Chicago who want to come on out, it is it is open to all, even though it's a Young Survival Coalition event. Um, young adults with any diagnosis are, are welcome to come. I have no problems crashing YSE events. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone, so much. Carol, good luck with everything. Dr. Sherman, I will be in touch with you tomorrow. I have something to uh, specifically talk to you about of a really great interest. And um, well, we, we, we can't hear about it? It's, it's under the table right now, but we'll find about it. Is HIPAA attached to it or something? It's HIPAA, yeah, it's exactly. It's a HIPPO. So thank you very much, everybody. Have a wonderful week. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank good you. night. Goodbye to all of our guests. Hey Matt, you know that was uh, Matt. That was a really good spot about the whole chemo brain thing, because just earlier today you and I were going over some stuff and uh... what? Jack? What? Say goodnight, Jack. <laughs> oh dear Lord! What? Why are you looking at me that way? Say because you started Jack. Jack's chemo brain kicked in mid chemo brain. It did. Oh boy, dude, that was so staged. <laughs> what was staged? people are gonna. People aren't going to fall for these shenanigans. They're smarter than that. Yeah. But they all believe I'm dumb. Well, there's truth in merit in that. Dude, I am so smart. S-M-R-T. <laughs> all right. Um, you know who taught me that? Homer Simpson. No. Me? Dr. Schumacher. Oh, fantastic. You keep mentioning this mysterious Dr. Schumacher. It's like my uh, it's like my Wilson next-door neighbor. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, Lisa, you will be here next week, we hope, correct? I will indeed. Good. Right. Well, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening tonight. A really active chat room. We hope we brought you some value. The show will be uh, rebroadcast in perpetuity at supercancershow.com. And now we're going to go to our closing sequence. dum da dum Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, Internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, John Filbert, Dr. Stephen Sherman, and the lovely Carol Rosenthal. Our in-studio guests, Mo Klumpus, Erica Paul, and Kate Donat. Amanda Freeman, as always, Jack Buffard. Yes. Next week's show, <laughs> next week's show journaling. Doodling? Doodling. 
<laughs> no, that's your version of journaling. <laughs> Jennifer Goodman Lynn, young adult survivor of uh, MFA sarcoma, founder of Cycle for Survival. Deborah Ludwig, young adult survivor of leukemia, author of Rebirth, and creator of the Writing for Your Life workshop. Dr. Laura Lieberman, lymphoma survivor, attending radiologist to breast imaging at Sloan Kettering, and author of I Signed as the Doctor. If you missed any of our previous broadcasts, check out the archives at stupidcancershow.com or subscribe to our podcasts at itunes.i2y.com. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week, my friends, live from the chemo deck. Jack Buford, Lisa Bernhardt, Amanda Freeman, Captain Sibley, and I wish you all a great evening. Go to bed, Dory. Fucker out. out. Welcome home.